Hello and welcome back to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Serdan, improving well-being through innovation. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. I'm joined again by this month's podcast guest, consultant in transfusion medicine, Dr. Heidi Doughty, OBE. In this episode, we'll be talking to Heidi about the transfusion developments and innovation in the emergency setting. Welcome back, Heidi. Well, hello, Natasha. Heidi, could you please remind our audience about what you do and where you work? Well, actually, I'm lucky to say I'm now semi-retired as a consultant in transfusion medicine, but I still enjoy doing a little bit of consultancy work together with lecturing and staff and student support. And when we say transfusion medicine, what do we mean? Well, I sort of see it as a medical subspecialty designed primarily to deliver optimal transfusion support to a wide range of patient groups. And most of us as consultants work either in hospitals or the blood service. And the hospital consultants normally come from a background of haematology or paediatrics and then develop special interests in other secondary care specialties. Gosh, that's really interesting. Um, And what does the job actually entail? They are incredibly varied. You know, I've worked in both the hospital setting as well as for the blood service. And my hospital-based activities sort of used to include tailoring transfusion support for the individual patient, including those that perhaps might refuse blood. Clinical oversight of the transfusion laboratories, working really closely with the blood bank managers and the transfusion practitioner nurses. Advising high-use specialties, so particularly in surgery, obstetrics, hemato-oncology. And, you know, any of those activities could be combined with what I call general clinical consultant responsibilities and patient care, just depending on the specific post. So although I didn't do direct patient care, I was very interested in trauma care. So I would attend the trauma multidisciplinary team meetings to contribute. Gosh, so it feeds into many different specialties. That's really, really interesting. Could you tell us about your role within blood services? Well, again, it's incredibly varied, whether it was for myself or for others, but um, the variety of um, contributions would include perhaps complex diagnostics, Uh, the development of blood components, stem cells, tissues, organs. We have teams supporting donor and apheresis services. And then others that are much more involved with laboratories or clinical research. And wherever we work, there is, I think, quite a considerable management and leadership element, writing policy papers, delivering guidelines, completing audit, research projects and education. Wow, so the role itself is really varied as well. Um, Just in case anybody who's listening doesn't know, what does apheresis mean? Oh, apheresis is collecting blood components, but using a machine. And so it's often referred to as component donation. And so instead of just having a a slim needle placed 
in the vein in your elbow. This time you would have perhaps one or, or two needles, but the blood's coming out, it's then being spun, perhaps the red cells going back to the donor and just skimming off the actual fragment that we need. And so it allows us to collect really valuable components such as platelets, which of course is what we use for some of the most critically ill patients. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, and much of your recent career has focused on transfusion in major trauma. What are some of the innovations and developments that you have seen or been involved in? I think firstly, anything I say about transfusion has to be put into context with the reorganisation of trauma services, which has been radically changed during the last decade and has seen fantastic results. So there's been development of major trauma centres together with their networks and their pre-hospital partners who tend to, they all work in geographical regions. And then sort of nested within that are the various treatment pathways of which transfusion is one. So transfusion support has changed. Actually, quite a lot of those developments have been very much stimulated by what's been learnt in recent conflict. And so if I had to pull out perhaps four main examples, I would choose what we call damage control resuscitation, which is using hemorrhage control and early use of blood transfusion to treat what we call a coagulopathy. There's been the introduction of tranexamic acid to reduce bleeding, as well as major hemorrhage protocols to sort of coordinate the transfusion support. I think in our bid to try and reduce delays in treating patients, we've increasingly moved towards early or pre-hospital transfusion. And then finally, you know, I think all of these things, together with what we call patient blood management, has informed transfusion support for both emergencies and disaster planning. Wow. So that's really um, outside the normal scope of what we might think of hospital specialty. That's that's absolutely fascinating um, and again just for anybody who's listening hemorrhage means bleeding and coagulopathy just means not able to clot properly so coming back to the first example when a person suffers major trauma such as a road traffic accident a stabbing or a shooting how does the physiology and ability to regulate coagulation or clotting change I think it's quite a difficult question to answer simply, but I, I think a succinct answer would be that the trauma causes bleeding, which in turn causes shock. And we now know that shock causes blood failure. I There's just a disruption to the way that the body clots and, and clotting is what stops the blood continuing to bleed it's you know as we create the sort of natural jelly-like blocks in the blood vessels that stop the oozing and what we also know is that you know quite often when patients get injured perhaps there's a, a bit of a delay by the roadside they might become cold or they might have some other health problems might be on tablets or treatment that actually makes this whole business of, of trying to manage the natural body processes worse. So this whole business of coagulopathy or 
abnormalities in our normal um, control of bleeding is incredibly important for treatment. What does that mean for treatment, um, in particular the four H's? Some people might be familiar with that. Ooh, the four H's introduces another load of those peculiar medical words, doesn't it? So yeah. let's start. I think time matters. So survival in trauma or any other cause of major bleeding requires early recognition. You, you need to realise you've got a poorly patient and what you need to do is to stop the bleeding and then get on with delivering what I call advanced first aid. And advanced first aid now would almost certainly include warm, blood-based resuscitation. And so my, my anaesthetic colleagues, many of whom, of course, are involved with this pre-hospital transfusion, they talk about correcting the four H's. So we've got hypothermia, I stop the patient becoming too cold, hypoxemia, so we need to correct the airway and the breathing to get the oxygen in, hypovolemia, make sure the blood pressure doesn't fall too low. And then finally, hypocoagulability, I make sure the body can clot properly. And they're all intimately interrelated, they're interdependent, but somehow we need to balance treatment to correct all of them as soon as possible. Mm, and it can be a really tricky balancing act to get that right. Um, you've mentioned major hemorrhage protocols before. Can you explain what they are? Oh, it's just a, a long phrase for a treatment guideline. But it's the treatment guideline that outlines the processes, the people, the products, and perhaps the, the medicines required to treat a bleeding patient. And so we describe it as a sort of a treatment algorithm. And because we tend to use blood components or parts of blood in the UK, it it just guides the doctors and the nurses on the order and the mixes of blood and components together with all the different treatments such as tranexamic acid that is required to treat the bleeding in different clinical conditions. And so treatment tends to start with a sort of standardised, balanced transfusion, which is then guided by things such as the blood pressure and the pulse. And then as the test results begin to be available, so that might be I don't know, blood tests by the bedside or blood tests from the laboratory, then the team individualise the treatment. And it's all about, you know, individualised patient care. So the patient is resuscitated. They're prepared for surgery, which is the sort of definitive way of stopping the bleeding. So it's all about recognise the patient at risk, treat as quickly as possible and get them to definitive care. Mm. And what about pre-hospital transfusion? Well, I think if, if time matters, the question is, how do we reduce delay? So there's quite a lot of work going on around how do we reduce delays in the hospital? But perhaps... One of the solutions is to start as much treatment before the hospital, i.e. pre-hospital transfusion. And that means starting the blood either in the back of the ambulance or in the air ambulance. And 
it's certainly something I was involved with in the military, building on the work of um, my predecessors. And it's something that we've also been involved with in civilian practice and is a, is a really interesting area of active research at the moment. Mm, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. How practical is it to give blood in this sort of pre-hospital setting? Do you know, I think you're so right to ask about the practicalities because a lot of what we do in medicine is around appliance of science. And actually, you know, I've said before that I'm a very practical person. And so you're looking at how to make it feasible. Um, there are a lot of practical issues to consider because, firstly, this is a very different environment. You know, it's there's vibration. The temperature is not very well controlled. It's noisy. So you've got a team that's got to try and work together when perhaps they can't use the normal cues. Mm. And, and the bit about temperatures, it's quite an interesting one. Blood is very temperature sensitive material. You do need to control it and look after it properly. And so one of the small bits of practical research that I did recently working with a, a really super research paramedic was just taking a little look at the temperature in different parts of the helicopter, sort of in the front where the pilot and co-pilot were, and then in different areas around the back, you know, patient stretcher, etc. Oh boy, you know, the temperature inside those helicopters really varies right the way throughout the year. And you might think that in the UK, we've got pretty temperate climb without too much extreme, but my heavens, you know, the, the front of that helicopter was getting up to temperatures of near 50 degrees centigrade. So not good for patients, for the staff, and certainly not good for the blood. And so a lot of the practicalities about pre-hospital transfusion is about little boxes, you know, and I know far more about boxes now than I ever did 10 years ago. And I think there's been a lot of really interesting developments about what we call cold chain management. And that's not just about getting the right box. It's also about the temperature data loggers, which proves that the blood has been kept at the correct temperature throughout entire journey. And this is really important to reduce blood wastage. Wow. So many considerations there that certainly I never even would have thought of. Um, how easy is it to choose what blood to use and set up a blood transfusion in that sort of clinical environment? Well, we've, we've said it's a difficult environment. And what you don't have is the ability to take a sample of blood, to test it, confirm what the blood group is, which means by definition that you need to be using what we call universal blood that's safe for everyone. So the whole challenge is around simplifying the speedy, safe transfusion of blood. And so it's not just about choosing the right blood groups, but it's also about choosing different combinations of red cells and plasma. And we've said that our treatment algorithms are all based on trying to get that balance. And so for us, it's around the challenge has been around the use of plasma. And plasma is probably quite important, not just for volume, clotting factors, but also for the lining of the blood vessels, the endothelium. But it's normally stored as frozen, which is no good on the back of the helicopter. So you need to 
perhaps pre-thaw it. Or we've been experimenting with dry blood, which needs making up in solution. And all of those things create delays or the risk of wastage. So I think one of the really interesting areas of research is looking at the use of Grupo, i.e. universal, whole blood, which provides that natural balance. And that actually should speed up the whole transfusion process. I mean, there are some downsides, but I find it really interesting that a, a sort of a focus on human factors in emergency transfusion is actually leading to really good blood component development and constantly improving patient safety. And so much of what we get taught about human factors is that the psychology of that situation just can make or break the outcome for everybody. So, yeah, that's really important to consider. Normally, it's only doctors that order blood. Um, what happens if there isn't a doctor? Well, it brings us back to teamwork again, doesn't it? Because, you know, in the back of ambulances, back of air ambulances, there's an increasingly multidisciplinary team and there may not be a doctor there and if time matters what we want is for the first people on the scene to be able to give life-saving treatments and that means we have to be open to developing the scope of practice of all our colleagues and an area that we've been looking at is non-medical authorization of blood so it's it's perhaps a little bit strange that Blood isn't prescribed, it's authorised. And so quite a few of the blood services have sort of set up training schemes to provide the knowledge and skills framework that allows healthcare professionals from a whole range of backgrounds to be able to initiate the appropriate transfusion of blood, not just for emergency situations that we've been talking about, but often for our a lot of our patients who are perhaps on long-term transfusion. So I'm, I'm still doing some teaching, and this is really one of my favourite courses because our students reflect so many different parts of the health service and so many different patient groups. And just as an example, um, what, what are the different parts of the health service that you get students from? Well, I think... You know, the majority of our students have tended to be nursing colleagues, either working in special care baby units or working with patients with thalassemia and sickle cell. But increasingly, we see more nurses coming in from the emergency departments. But alongside them, we have physicians' assistants, operating department practitioners. And my own area of interest is paramedics. And all of these different um, healthcare groups are, you know, involved with different patients, whether it's in the community or in the hospital. Uh, and I think it's really super that actually the transfusion world is beginning to make use of the multidisciplinary team. Mm, I like that. So many different colleagues in different departments learning such essential skills. The last topic you mentioned was transfusion support for major incidents and emergency planning. Could you tell us more about this? I think it's uh, an area of ongoing development, particularly in transfusion. And so I think there's considerable expectations now of the transfusion world to meet the support of the critically injured 
but also continue to care for all our other patients. And the support for major incidents requires as much about organisational preparation and working in partnership, and we are just a new partner. And what I think is particularly interesting is some of the public engagement partnerships. So that includes first aid programmes designed to stop the bleeding and also um, high readiness blood donor panels. And then coming back to the hospitals itself, I think one of the groups that have been really neglected in the past is our clinical laboratory services, because pathology has an incredibly important part to play in providing patient diagnostic, but also direct support. So my group produced guidance for hospital teams, the transfusion teams, and helping them sort of plan as well as respond and recover from incidents. And whereas each hospital is different, I think the key was knowing what the major incident plan was and knowing the number of patients that might be expected to that particular hospital, that's the critically ill patients, as well as the patients who might need other surgery. And I think the other thing that we really pulled out following experience was, you know, emergencies are stressful, particularly if they're happening time after time. And so I think one of the things that we really tried to highlight in our guidelines is just how important it is to care for our colleagues, both during as well as after these emergencies. And that's the importance of having a debrief after events like this as well. I know you've just come back from a meeting in the Middle East. What do you think the advantages are of being involved in international activities? Well, I've spoken before about listening and learning from others because there are just so many good ideas out there. And so I think the way that pathology has all its international links means that we can learn from colleagues across the globe. So, for instance, uh, during my visit to Dubai, I, I saw the most fabulous blood donor centre. And in particular, what really caught my eye was a really innovative blood donor app. And, you know, we know that digitization is making significant differences, but this was a way to really involve the donors, whether they wanted to be regular donors or just given emergencies. If we think of other examples, you know, I know of, of teams in the Middle East and Africa using drones to transport blood when perhaps the roads are too slow, they're blocked, they're difficult, perhaps they've been destroyed. Others knowing that there could be a real risk of significant infrastructure disruption have set up emergency regional collection centres that come into play when these central services aren't available and they can continue to ensure that safe blood is available, whether it's as whole blood or as components. So it doesn't matter whether it's a, an innovative idea or a solution. Um, it's not that it costs money. It's often just about organising things differently. And I think that is really fascinating. So I think emergency transfusion has stimulated an enormous international academic effort. My interest is sort of translating that research into locally sensitive practices that work. Mm. 
that's it. And everything will be individualized to that particular geographical region and, and the troubles and challenges that they face locally. There seems to be so many developments going on. What would you choose as the most significant? Yeah, I think there's been a shift in the relationship between perhaps clinical teams and these transfusion teams. And I don't know, I think I would say that in pathology, we have really evolved from being just a provider to being a true healthcare partner. I really like that. And that helps with the visibility of pathology specialties as well. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. All the previous podcast episodes are available at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. You can also follow the Royal College of Pathologists on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to find out about careers in pathology, including in transfusion medicine and services, head over to www.rcpath.org forward slash careers. I'm Natasha Cutmore, and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sir Dan. <laughs>